It's 3.30. We can start. First thing I want to say for everyone on the line is I've now started to listen to these podcasts. They're actually not bad. Uh, we, did over, we did over 90 of them before I started to listen. I've listened to the last three, and they're not bad. The other thing is I, I don't want to make this laborious for Mike and Jason, but if you email them, they have a new system. So you don't even have to go in on Spotify. Once they get it up on the internet, they have an email, or at least I get an email, where you can hit one button and get the 20 pages printed out, and you can hit another button and, and hear that Wednesday's call. That's very convenient. That's something, if, if I were following this every Wednesday, that's something I'd probably do I'll also add, Hunt, that we recently started publishing to YouTube. So, ah. well, you won't get Hunt's video. You do actually get video of Jason and I. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. We might have faces <laughs> for radio, but nonetheless, we are on YouTube. Yeah, that's cool. Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Uh, exhibit C, oil. It is very much on a knife edge, in my opinion, with the Saudis. I'm, I'm going to have to get some DOE stuff and update this stuff over year end. But for example, on the supply side, in 24, we have the U.S. at 12.7 million barrels a day. Based on Platt's articles, I'm seeing them at 13.3, which is a new record for U.S. productions. Uh, Saudi Arabia at 9.3, I think, is all the way down to 9. I think the Russians at 10.1, I think, are somewhat below that. But that's logistic issues. I don't think they ever actually live up to any commitments they make to restrain production. I think it's just logistics issues. So I, I think what's happening is that that forecast of supply, which includes NGLs, other liquids at 102.6. I'm afraid it's one or one and a half more than that. But I'll try to get some good DOE numbers over year end. And by the time we get into January, we'll have a, a new set of numbers to look at for 24. In terms of demand, China is, is a, you know, probably not a positive for oil demand. Uh, other Asia may be okay. What I worry about is that the Saudis, at times in the past, have said, if people aren't going to adhere to reductions, we're going to do market share. Market share would take the price of oil measured by WTI from the mid-70s to you know the mid-50s or something. Hopefully, it doesn't come to that, but it is a bit worrisome in terms of someone who, you know, all of us who own companies that where the oil price helps determine the revenue. Same issue on Exhibit B. The amount of increased production is significant. And 
you look at 22 at 95 and a half bees a day, 23 is basically in the record books at almost 102. That's a pretty significant increase, just as 95 was a pretty significant increase from 21, 91, and 21. 24 and 25 on this chart, I have going up two bees a day per year. But, I mean, production in late 23 is already running 104, 105. So what has happened is, if you go down to the estimated price, Henry Hub, that used to be 350, now it's 320. Or if you go down to the 1130 level, the strip price for 24 used to be 350, now it's $3. And even 25 has come off a bit. That used to be $4 and change. And last Thursday, uh, when I did these sheets, it was 390. So it is a little bit worrisome. The problem with that increased supply is the thing in demand that goes up is LNG feed gas. You can see that was like just under six in 2019, seven in 2020, almost just under 11 in 21, just under 12 in 22, 13, 15, 17, kind of going up two bees a day per year. But that's if production is going up by that, that's 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 going to still result in an oversupply. Fortunately, power, which was flat up until about 21, has now been going up by two bees a day per year, and hopefully that is maintained. I think what is happening there is wind and solar increase part of the power availability, but wind can underperform based on projections made at the time it's installed, and so can solar. So I think that's created on a year-round basis for gas consumption. The other thing I have to update over year-end is Exhibit A, clearly the, the deficit was more than 1.4 trillion in 23, you know, ending September 30. I think the newspaper articles I've seen say it was 1.7. There's there's two problems with the budget, and we're going to see a lot of this in Congress, uh, in the House, and in the Senate. The one problem is that Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid kind of go up, kind of automatically. Those are called the mandated programs, and what the people running for office will say is that we need to have a commission to look at those. There was Alan Greenspan, the former Fed chairman, led a commission to make some changes in Social Security. This is many years ago, and it seemed to work. No politician wants to advocate changes. They want to appoint a commission to come up with changes and then see if a political consensus can be developed. The other thing, which is, I find, just very, just very important for elected politicians to focus on. If you take all other, in other words, you take out interest and you take out defense, and you have all other, in 2018, it was $780 billion. In 2019, it was 910 And then COVID happened, and it got up almost to $3 trillion, uh, the money spent by federal government to try to keep our economy from collapsing uh, with COVID and also to, 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 you know, to provide tests and vaccines and whatnot for everyone. That 22 came down to a trillion nine. And last year, I suspect the trillion four, when we finally have a good set of numbers, it's going to be more than that. That really needs to be dialed back to the 2019 levels. We, we don't have the capacity to spend that money. And 
you know, whether it's a, a Republican president, Trump or someone else elected next November, or whether it's, you know, what, however it happens, it just needs to be dealt with. And we cannot, in a full employment economy with, a, with an unemployment rate of, of, of 4% or under 4%, we cannot have a deficit of eight or nine percent of our GMP. It just will not work, should not work, and needs to be dealt with. It's one thing to have a commission to blame the the uh, you know the the automatic increases. And by the way, let's look at twenty three. Social Security is a trillion three. Medicare is a trillion. Medicaid is six six hundred billion. So that's a total of say three trillion dollars. I mean, that's a lot of money, but look at the top. I mean, the payroll tax, which is dedicated to all that, is a trillion six. It's, you know, it's too automatic excuse by the people that, that comment on this to say the mandatory spending needs to be fixed and discretionary spending needs to be fixed. It's, it's really necessary. I'll stop and see if Mike or Jason, they probably just agree with me, but any comment, Mike or Jason, on that macro picture? No, nothing to add. I mean, we, we, we agree and uh, preach on, I, I think. is the. <laughs> this episode of Telltales is brought to you by Top Mark Capital. They're not your typical hedge fund. They use a blend of best practices from value investing, venture capital, and private equity, which gives them a unique perspective on market dynamics. And the results truly speak for themselves. So... If you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative emerging manager, visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. This is not an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. And now, back to the show. This is going to be interesting and, and informative, I think. Last week, we were focused on whether anyone could catch Apple, page one, with $85 trillion of free cash flow. And we did these sheets over the weekend. You know, Alphabet's getting remarkably close, if I've done my math right, at $50 billion. Tesla is a long way. Tesla is actually losing a little ground. So remember, we asked Jason how long, you know, he, he said, not in three years, because one of my, one of the things Musk says about Tesla is we will catch Apple, um, and Tesla does run on free cash flow. I mean, they're they're very strict financially, so I'm sure he he he's meaning not just revenue but free cash flow. Microsoft, of course, at sixty billion. You know, if the combination with OpenAI gives them additional products that they can charge rent for, maybe they can catch them from 60 billion. But, you know, Meta's, you know, still pretty small. Amazon, I think we decided maybe Amazon might be able to get there. But what I'd like to focus on this week is rate of change in free cash flow. And the absolute champ at rate of change in free cash flow over the last 12 months is NVIDIA. NVIDIA's free cash flow is just, and my numbers are way conservative, I think. This is on page three, is $26 billion. I mean, that's up, that's up significantly from where it was. And it's going to be quite a lot higher than $26 billion when you string together some more 
$20 billion sales quarters. It's interesting to me that everyone else on this page, if you go to the interim plus or minus, everyone else is a negative on revenue. Everyone else is a negative on EBITDA and everyone else is a negative on free cash flow. So just think of the achievement that NVIDIA represents. And I can pause there and pose for Mike and Jason, whether it's AMD or Intel or I want semiconductor or ASML. Do you, do you think that we be looking at a chart like this this next year and see any one of those four companies where they're adding to their free cash flow rather than negative on an interim basis? And if so, which ones do you think have a chance to get back on track and have an increase in free cash flow? I think they'll all show improvement. Um, the Aside from NVIDIA, the rest of the semiconductor market's going through um, going through a slow time with PC and CPU sales, um, and that impacts all the other companies on this sheet much more. You know, obviously much more than Nvidia. They don't they don't do much in that market, but um, they should all rebound. And, it, and it's kind of interesting to see Taiwan Semiconductor um, shrinking shrinking revenue and free cash flow when Nvidia's business has grown so much, and and they produce all their chips there. So the situation at TSMC could have been worse. A, a strong mobile cycle, though, would change all of that. I mean, if the next generation of phones are drastically better because they have more, I, I mean, who knows? We can speculate on what the reason is, but the general consensus is that the next version of the iPhone is going to have much more generative AI capability built into the phone. Um, it would be disappointing if that's not the case. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if it drives a, another heavy upgrade cycle for iPhone users. Yeah, uh, I think it's, it's already, signs are it's already going to be the case. So um, Qualcomm and Meta have a partnership where Meta's models are going to be on the Qualcomm chip. Mm -hmm. um, and then that obviously goes into Android phones. And Taiwan Semiconductor's investments, if you look at their $34 billion in CapEx that's shown here, would signal that that's what they're thinking as well. Good. Well, it's it's kind of all the above might be positive. Mm -hmm. Even Intel. A rising Even tide Intel. lifts all ships. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, Intel started from, I, I mean, the, the amount of CapEx they're going to have to spend just to make good on their plans is going to, I don't know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't look for a lot of free cash flow to come from Intel. Yeah. yeah. Here's an interesting test. Apple you know, which is up 50% this year, just surpassing the tr $3 trillion market cap level in terms of momentum, interim. Uh, and of course, Apple's a 930 year, so it's the 12 months to, to, to September 30. Their free cash flow is down, their revenue is down. Alphabet looks much better, revenue up, free cash flow up. Tesla, which Revenue is going up, but they have some margin compression, so their free cash flow is down. If we looked at these three two two years from now, not one year from now, I mean, I I would expect Apple to stop declining at some point. Yes, Alphabet, which looked pretty challenged by OpenAI and whatnot, 
pay still will have increasing cash flow. I would expect in two years' time the advantages, vote if you will, that Tesla has, that their sales would still be growing, but their free cash flow would start to go up rather than down. Jason, does that is that a reasonable assessment as far as these three companies go, do you think? I think so. In, in Apple's case, they had a lot of China exposure and, and that's been weak this past year. And it, and it seems from my outside perspective that it's continuing to weaken over there. So the coming year might still be rough, but two years time, it should rebound. And, and some interesting news with Tesla came out this week. Um, there was an interview with, with Elon and a, uh, an automotive journalist that kind of got overshadowed by his, uh, his spirited conversation with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Um, but it, but in his, but in his interview with the journalist, he, um, he mentioned some of the work they're doing with the model Two, And he said that they, he weekly now is reviewing production plans for the model Two, And this remember is going to be a $25,000 EV mass market. Um, and the original plan was that is, was going to be made in the Mexico plant. Um, and the new thing that came out this past week is initially they're going to start production in Texas. Um, and that's going to come before they finish the building the plant in Mexico. So the schedule for that is 2026. And you back that out. It's possible the Model 2 comes out in 2025. So that could really change, you know, saying two years time, that could really change where, where Tesla's sitting at that time. The U.S. car manufacturers have found they could make margin in SUVs and trucks and whatnot, but smaller smaller cars, even smaller crossovers, they can't make margin. But given the fact that Tesla's making margin with the Model 3, I guess, at fairly low prices, it, it would be reasonable to assume that they'll crack the code with a fairly inexpensive version of a car rather than a larger vehicle be able to make margin from the Model 2 once they get their production box up? I think so. I think they're learning a lot of what the Chinese automakers are doing over there. The rumors for the Model 2 are they're going to have a different battery chemistry that is much cheaper to produce. Um, The car won't have as much power, but you know, everyone doesn't need an EV that goes zero to 60 in three seconds. So I think they will. You know, Elon promised a revolutionary change in manufacturing. So we'll see what that means. You know, he, he, he talks he, a grandioso game, but uh, it, there are going to be pretty significant changes. Um, some of them got previewed with the Cybertruck with how they've really reduced the amount of wiring and copper that go into uh, automobiles. Uh, I'd have to imagine they're going to do that across all their product lines and, and definitely in the Model 2. It, it's kind of like the automakers of old. I mean, back in the, call it 50s, 60s, 70s, the U.S. automakers were producing very high-volume model runs. And saving pennies made a huge difference to their profitability. Um, pennies on individual parts. In general, model runs have shrunk in size. So there's less, and, and this was all done because the industry was optimizing because the market wanted differentiated cars. And I think what Tesla's doing is basically offering 
undifferentiated, well, differentiated by software, right? Because you could buy autopilot, you can buy, you know, the moderately different ranges within the Model 3 or the Model Y or the Model X, but practically the same vehicle. So they're gaining the scale efficiencies um, so that they minimize their costs and their marginal profit is driven more by features that have zero marginal cost. Yeah. And I think the big automakers are chasing the, the market that we all had an appetite for very big, expensive vehicles when money was free and you could get an eight-year loan on a car. Yeah. Um, those days are over. Yeah. An eight-year <laughs> loan at, at 12% interest is going to be pretty painful these days, I think. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to skip the software page because I'm going to update that page this weekend and switch to the uh, content page with Netflix. I'm not quite sure that Amazon should be on the content page, but unlike the others, these are updated through 9.30, and Netflix didn't have any increase in free cash flow, but, but Walt Disney did, and I guess just tightening up, and Amazon did, and Meta did, and I think it's reasonable to forecast that Netflix will you think that these four companies are, again, to use our test of, let's say, two years from now, around one year from now, you think there'll be a, an acceleration or, a, or a, you, you think having significant increases, you know, 20% or more in free cash flow is feasible across these four companies? I, th I think Amazon's a case in point. Let's talk about Netflix, Walt Disney, and Meta. I, I think Meta is well positioned to continue to accelerate. They're, how much they spend on Metaverse and AI may impact the rate of growth. But I think that what, what we're sort of experiencing on the internet now is that a walled garden, like a Facebook property, is a, now that they've figured out the targeted advertising piece, um, post ATT, which was the app tracking transparency um, um, rules that that Apple set out that made it harder to track uh, the success and failure of advertisements. They've pretty much solved most of those problems. So they're going back to a situation where they're able to generate uh, much more uh, more profit. And it ultimately drives down to their advertisers being able to access the customers they want that walled garden approach is probably going to continue to be um, pretty effective. Um, Netflix, on the other hand, is more of a litmus test, I think. Uh, the market is going to be expecting an acceleration in free cash flow. And in order to get there, they need to get this advertising tier working and potentially might need to get into live content as well. So I, I don't know for sure, but I, my suspicion is uh, that they will start making moves towards live content, which Amazon has clearly done already, and, and some of the other streaming properties like Peacock have as well. So that leaves Disney. Um, I guess I don't have a strong, hugely strong perspective here, but they have, they're more diversified a little bit. Right? They have the theme parks, they've got the movies and the content and the streaming product that currently costs them money. Um, 
are they in a position to, I, I think give them two to three years, they're going to balance out some of that, um, some of that cash flow. Does it accelerate beyond 10? Do they double that in three years? I think that would be a, a, a bit of a stretch. Yeah. For me, Netflix, when I, when I think about Netflix, I think about the transition to cable originally. Um, and you were kind of like you were doing Netflix, I guess, a year ago. You're, you're paying for the right to watch content without ads. Now they're introducing an ad tier. Um, and it, in my mind, it's going to go the same way as cable. You know, the, everything's going to be an ad tier and you're paying more and more to get the content that includes ads. So thinking through that perspective, I, I think Netflix is probably in a good position. The thing that scares me is the switching costs are, are way too easy with them. Is, is it possible that with you know worldwide subscriber base that's bigger than anyone else is likely to achieve that a content producer, not necessarily Walt Disney, but another content producer will just or other content producers will just find it's more economic to make a deal with Netflix because if they're covering the world? Uh, absolutely. I, and I think that's kind of the end state is you, you probably end up with two dominant streaming platforms that pretty close to have all of the same stuff. Um, in, in the case of music, there's only one. I, I, mean, I guess you could say there's two if you count Apple Music. But, um, but there's one that is trying to be a financially viable business. Apple Music is probably subsidized by the fact that Google pays so much in services business. Right. In the few minutes we have left, I think on this discussion of rate of change of free cash flow, positive rate of change, I uh, just want to go through some of these sheets. On page five, Charter and Comcast having to fight off Verizon and T-Mobile with fixed wireless, they for the nine months, in each case, have a decline in free cash flow. I suspect that that will persist as long as they have to compete with fixed base wireless. Is that a reasonable reasonable position, do you think, Mike? Until, only if and until the fixed base wireless capacity is used up and today based on comments in the last set of earnings calls from T-Mobile in particular and I think Verizon right. and AT&T said similar things basically we're good we have plenty of capacity uh, and the other thing that actually is interesting here that plays into this is that the FCC has not figured out what it's going to do for the next set of auctions and unsurprisingly a lot of lobbying efforts have to do with getting them set up the way that the industry wants them. So it's mostly dictated by the big three. Nobody wants to set that up before an election year, right? Because, again, you're maximizing the value you can get if you're a political party. So I would expect no big announcements from the FCC as far as large block auctions would go until after the next election. Yeah, and I, I would just add... Uh, there's a, there's a company in India, I, I don't recall the name, 
but they are trying to be the nation's broadband provider um, all over 5G fixed wireless. So that's kind of a test to see how, how much coverage can be supplied through this as well. And we might not have to look at you know, our, our own telecoms for that. Interesting. Just to finish up page six, which is AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, they all have reduced CapEx for the nine months and increased cash flows, free cash flow. I would think without having to buy more spectrum, spend more money building out their networks, that trend will persist, that they'll have lower CapEx which kind of accelerates their increase in free cash flows compared to, for example, if you look at look at Verizon, their EBITDA is up a billion two, but their capex is down a billion six, so their free cash flow is up two point eight off a base of twenty three billion. So, I mean, maybe maybe that is maybe that means that the Free cash flow, enterprise to free cash flow multiple of 13 times is about right because that's not really growth, but but it is an interesting phenomenon. I think next week, the MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, those are recent. And this weekend, going to update the Walmart page as well as the software page. So I think we can continue with this who has momentum in free cash flow increase. I think that's a useful thing to focus on. And we'll try to continue and not just treat the first several several pages. We'll try to cover all 20 pages in terms of momentum increasing free cash flow. With that, everyone, stay well and be healthy. And we'll talk next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information, and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.